The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Good morning, everyone. This is Dr. Alan Fine, the podcast editor of the Annals of the American uh, Thoracic Society. And today we're going to discuss with Dr. Daniel Dilling from uh, Loyola Stritch uh, Medical School in Chicago uh, the topic of cystic lung disease, specifically uh, a paper entitled Chest CT Image Screening for Cystic Lung Disease in Patients with Spontaneous Pneumothorax is Cost-Effective. Uh, and this was uh, written by uh, Dr. Uh, Gupta, uh, and his colleagues at University of Cincinnati. Uh, and Dr. Dilling, uh, who wrote the accompanying editorial uh, in uh, the January issue of the Annals, uh, is Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care and heads the Advanced Lung Disease uh, and Rare Lung Disease Program at Loyola. So what interested me uh, in this topic is it is one that comes up quite frequently for a, a pulmonologist and is one that is not very well defined. Cystic lung disease, I think, uh, is an area of confusion uh, for both trainees and even attendings with long uh, experience. There have been some recent attempts to uh, classify cystic lung disease, but uh, uh, although I applaud uh, these efforts, I'm still coming away uh, a little bit confused. Uh, even uh, the definition of one, what constitutes uh, a cyst, uh, the overlapping definitions of uh, uh, cyst, traction, bronchiectasis, bulli, where one begins, another, and still remains uh, unclear to me. So I'm hoping Dr. Dilling will clarify all of this. So uh, welcome, Dr. Dilling. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you today. And I'll, I'll say in advance, we, we applaud Dr. Dilling for coming out and speaking with us despite a... Uh, a bad cold. Um, so, uh, Dan, uh, I'm going to ask you uh, first to tell us uh, a little bit about your your take and your perspective on cystic lung disease. Uh, is there a particular classification scheme uh, that you use? Um, can they can cystic lung disease be easily classified? using merely or uh, pre predominantly radiologic techniques? Yeah, I, I would say that over the past several years, as more and more CT scans are being done, we're finding many more, uh, we're finding many more cases of patients with cystic lung disease of varying sorts. And I think that phenomenon has led to uh, a better discussion and a better uh, ability to categorize and uh, has even resulted in some nice and published um, uh, reports about uh, how to approach a patient with cystic lung disease that have been published uh, in the, just in the past year and year and a half. So 
many times these patients come to us accidentally. They will have had a CT scan for some other reason. I've had patients get them of the neck, catching the tops of the lungs. I've had many with abdominal CT scans that uh, catch the bottoms of the lungs. Um, they have CT scans of the chest for other reasons. They may present with shortness of breath or pneumothorax. There's a variety of pathways to getting that CT scan that demonstrates the cyst that brings this all to attention. And the patients uh, should have a high-resolution CT scan. It um, allows for a clearer delineation of the uh, sort of a phenotypic description of the of the cystic lung disease. It's uh, whether it's homogenous, whether it's lower lung predominant, whether the cysts have more circular shape, whether they have more um, bizarre shapes or lentiform shapes. All of these things can be used by an expert radiologist or a pulmonologist to help begin the process of deciding what the syndrome or disease is that's led to the cystic lung disease. Uh, with that said, each disease, whether it's LAM, whether it's Bertog de Bay, whether it's Langerhans, uh, Sjogren's disease, or others, have different prognosis, they have different treatment approaches, they have different monitoring approaches. So I think there's an importance in trying to delineate the right diagnosis from the point, time point of having uh, gotten that first CT scan. So uh, I think uh, spontaneous pneumothorax is a common problem. Uh, in fact, I saw one just yesterday. But uh, can you give us uh, some perspective about uh, how common is it? And is it prior to the uh, Gupta paper, did you have a feeling that it was uh, associated with some uh, underlying or a significant underlying uh, pathology that needed further investigation? Uh, published, well, first of all, primary spontaneous pneumothorax is one that occurs in the absence of a precipitating event, like trauma, and also in the absence of any known lung disease. Now, that's a, that can be a bit misleading because not having a known lung disease doesn't mean you don't have a lung disease. So, uh, there, there is a little bit of a uh, need for the physician caring for that patient to try and discern whether there's an underlying lung disease and to make that diagnosis. And that's actually the topic of this article. Um, it's a, a primary new, spontaneous pneumothorax has a variable incidence. It's a little more common in men than in women. Published reports suggest somewhere between about 2 and 10 per 100,000 women and somewhere between about 7 and 24 per 100,000 men per year. Um, and the difference might have something to do with um, smoking incidence. It might have something to do with incidence of underlying disease that has been undiagnosed. And it might have something to do with body habitus, like marfanoid kind of thing. So prior, uh, let, let's say, um, has uh, what would be your approach? Well, what would you consider the standard approach to evaluating a, a, a spontaneous pneumothorax, uh, and has this changed for you uh, over the last year or two? Well, the classic approach to a primary spontaneous pneumothorax is for the physician to obviously care for the patient, uh, either observation or insertion of a chest tube as a first step, and from there a um, progressive treatment course uh, perhaps requiring if it's not resolving and such. 
I also want to emphasize that it's important for that very same physician to try and discern whether there is an underlying lung disease that is otherwise unrecognized. That might be through uh, history taking and review of systems. That might be through just sort of understanding the amount of smoking history in the patient, perhaps some things about family history, and carefully looking at the chest x-ray to see if there's any parenchymal changes that should alert us to something underlying. With that said, um, the uh, classic approach to a primary spontaneous pneumothorax in the absence of a known lung disease does not involve getting a CT scan, and it does not involve any sort of further follow-up later of a CT scan to look for underlying lung disease. Now, I, saying that, there, uh, at, there was a publication a few years ago out of uh, the same group at the University of Cincinnati uh, that looked at um, specifically a group of young women who were non-smokers who had a primary spontaneous pneumothorax and found that there was uh, a cost-effectiveness to getting a CT scan there with the idea that um, lymphangial lyomyomatosis, or LAM, could be uncovered in that specific group. Uh, in preparation for our conversation, I went ahead and looked last night at uh, uh, UpToDate, which of course is the uh, right. medical, <laughs> medical resource at all of our fingertips, the one that I think most people are going to jump to when they're presented with a problem. And even there, uh, with, the, in the, uh, with the exception of that young non-smoking women, the approach described uh, and in other reviews is to not get a CT scan. Yeah, I, I would say that that had been my uh, my thinking uh, and my approach uh, prior to uh, your editorial and uh, Dr. Gupta's uh, paper. How how frequently should we expect to find underlying pathology? I guess my my thought was that it was rare and therefore not very cost effective to uh, pursue a workup in spontaneous pneumothorax beyond the uh, chest x-ray. Yeah, the predominant thinking with this is that in order to uncover some of these rare diseases like LAM, like Langerhans cell histocytosis, like Berthog debay and others, because they're so rare, we would all be getting lots and lots of CT scans that would be showing us nothing. And the prevailing thought then is that, that it's not only... Um, unnecessary radiation, but uh, not cost-effective. I don't think a cost-effective analysis has ever been done before, and that was actually the, the idea here, was to look at whether that cost of all those ultimately unnecessary CT scans would be outweighed by savings in other ways. So uh, I'd like to ask you to describe uh, Dr. Gupta's paper and... Uh, or summarize it, and uh, then tell us whether you think it's important and whether uh, it changes how uh, you practice and maybe how we should all practice. So the estimated recurrence rate after our first pneumothorax for patients with a primary spontaneous pneumothorax is relatively high, 23 to 50%, uh, according to various studies, over five years. Um, and it's much higher in patients who have these underlying cystic lung diseases. And so the idea of the paper is that an approach of, an, of a pleurodesis after that first pneumothorax, if you were to find underlying cystic lung disease, would ultimately result in 
cost savings because of not having a second episode of spontaneous pneumothorax and having an earlier pleuridesis that also might translate into other kinds of savings and, and also savings from health-related quality of life. So undertook this uh, study with a few assumptions, one based upon previous publication that uh, an expert radiologist can accurately diagnose these diseases um, with a high degree of, uh, relatively high degree of uh, accuracy. For example, Langerhans cell, 74% accuracy. LAM, 91% accuracy. And Berthog de Bay, 93% accuracy. They hypothesized that <clears throat> screening for uh, those diseases by high-resolution CT scan in patients with a primary spontaneous pneumothorax would lead uh, to a reduction in the number of future pneumothoraces, and because of this savings, ultimately proved to be cost-effective. They used a fancy simulation model that uh, is beyond my normal understanding since it's not <laughs> my area of research, but um, they analyzed some decision trees based upon how we march through a diagnosis of LAM, how we march through a diagnosis of Berthog de Bay, how we march through a uh, diagnosis of the other cystic lung disease, um, incorporated the cost of those things into it, assumed that, uh, that um, physicians caring for the patients would follow that sort of uh, protocolized approach to it, and they incorporated data uh, from, into their model from published literature about the incidence of pneumothorax recurrence in each of these diseases specifically, as well as the decrements to quality of life scores associated with pneumothorax and um, Medicare data to look at costs. And so ultimately, they compared the cost of high-resolution CT screening and a subsequent pleuridesis uh, in patients who were found to have cystic lung disease with the costs of a standard approach. So although there was a small increase in costs associated with doing all these additionally, additional and uh, unrevealing uh, CT scans. It was cost-effective as a result of cost savings associated with avoidance of recurrence of pneumothorax, as well as those improvements in quality of life associated with the subsequent pneumothorax and, and other treatment if screening was not done. So from a cost analysis standpoint, given some assumptions, given that this was a mathematical model, it appears that this was cost-effective. In fact, it wasn't just marginally cost-effective. It was uh, tremendously cost-effective from that analysis standpoint. And they, they even lowered some of the assumptions about how accurate the radiologist could be, how uh, often the, the, the uh, disease would be pursued correctly. And they still found this um, very uh, robust cost savings. So do uh, you find this, uh, these results uh, strong enough uh, to, to make a blanket recommendation, or do we need, still need more study uh, before we change our standard approach? Before I answer that question, I wanted to add one more thing. What is not analyzed in this paper is that patients with LAM, if diagnosed earlier, are going to go on to mTOR inhibition like serolimus earlier, it's going to help them in the long run. Patients who are found this way to have Berthog de Bay disease are going to be screened for renal cell carcinoma more early and more correctly, and we're going to find earlier cancers in those people, I think. Patients with Langerhans cell histocytosis, uh, if recognized, 
might get a little extra effort by the clinical team in trying to convince them that they really have to quit smoking in case we weren't being firm enough with it before. So I think there, are, there might even be some um, unrecognized and not described in this paper sorts of benefits from this approach. So to answer your other question, um, are these findings strong enough to warrant a change in the clinical approach? In my opinion, um, the costs associated with high-resolution CT scan and the radiation are kind of meant are are um, real, but I think this cost-effective analysis convinced me that despite all those unnecessary CT scans, that uncovering these patients with rare lung disease would change our approach in the short term with regard to earlier pleuridesis and minimization of future pneumothoraces and the problems associated with it. And it also, I think, would help in the comprehensive management of patients who are found to have these rare cystic lung diseases because they'll get plugged in with the right monitoring program, perhaps even um, with the type of specialist who might uh, be able to oversee their care plans in the best possible way. I would agree as well. The, on, the only caveat that I maybe want to comment uh, is that this was a simulation study rather than a, an actual clinical study. And uh, do we need a, some type of actual real-world examination of, of, you know, alternative approaches? Well, I, I, can't, I can't disagree that uh, a simulation and a, and a mathematical model based upon a number of assumptions about incidents and other things uh, does beg you to scratch your head a bit. And, uh, but I, and I think that the only true way to answer the question here and uh, to describe further what you're talking about is I think it would be best if somehow a trial could be organized where patients with a primary spontaneous pneumothorax were randomized to get a CT scan or not get a CT scan and, and see how things play out with regard to alternate diagnosis and with regard to cost savings. Um, perhaps even some quality of life uh, outcomes. Having said that, I think that study is unlikely to be organized. Well, it's, it's food for thought for the uh, rare lung disease group. You're right. You know, one I, I recently saw a patient who I believe has uh, Bert Hogg Dubai, who was interestingly sent because on a routine quote-unquote annual uh, chest x-ray done by her primary care. She had a fairly substantial pneumothorax, which the which we it was unknown how long she had had it. She had no symptoms. Uh, and I have to wonder whether uh, she could have been picked up a lot earlier uh, had uh, there been more attention to this uh, pneumothorax and uh, uh, to getting the CT because the extent of uh, cystic disease evident on the chest x-ray was much less than what was uh, uh, ultimately seen on her first CAT scan. So um, again, it, it is to me very interesting uh, information and given 
Uh, I don't know if these diseases are more frequent, but they're certainly being recognized more frequently, and we need to develop uh, more cost-effective approaches uh, to treatment and to early diagnosis. Uh, we really have to uh, thank uh, Dr. Dan Dilling from the uh, Loyola Stritch School of Medicine. Uh, he did heroic duty given uh, his uh, upper respiratory infection. He did a fabulous job. I learned a lot. And this is Dr. Alan Fine uh, from the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. Wishing you all good learning today and have a great day.